Support for the gray area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The following podcast contains explicit language. So the question I get more than any other is, is, do you have any advice for young journalists? And and the truth is I do. I have lots of advice. I love giving advice. It, it is a hobby. If you search my name in Google along with advice for young journalists, you'll find it. There's plenty there. But, but one of the people I've increasingly turned to for advice as I try to build Vox is Ben Thompson of Stratechery. Just a couple of years ago, Ben started a blog, just a, a random little corner of the internet, and he really quickly established himself. And this is true for a lot of the people I know who are in the media business. He really quickly established himself as one of the smartest and most thoughtful analysts at the intersection of, of journalism and media and business and technology. So getting to talk to him for this podcast was a lot of fun. We discuss a couple of topics that are very, very, very close to my heart, including whether you can still make it as, as an individual blogger, which Ben is showing you can, but, but the way in which you do that has really changed. So for those of you who are, who are bloggers, I think you'll find this really fascinating. We talk about how to make money as a modern media company, which I obviously care about a lot. We talk about his time working for Apple and, and Microsoft and what he learned about both companies and their core cultures. One thing, though, that, that comes up a couple of times in this interview, and I want you to pay attention to it. I really wanted to call it out because it's true in politics, too, and I think it's such a good habit of mind. Ben talks a lot about the importance of looking at companies that are making what seem to be bad decisions and always trying to understand why smart people, people who have more information than you or I do, who are more experienced in that industry than you or I are, why they're making those calls, why those calls are rational for them to make. I think it's a really good, really important habit that helps you understand the way things work and keeps you from falling into some pretty common traps where you dismiss bad decisions as obvious mistakes. And so you don't see the systems behind them. It, it's something that Ben returns to a bunch of times and I just really want people to pay attention to it because I, th I think it's so important. I enjoyed this conversation tremendously. I think you'll hear that in the interview. I hope you do too. Also, I've definitely heard all of you that you want a centralized place for all the book recommendations on this podcast. We are working on that right now. It will be up on Vox.com very soon. And as always, please do me a big favor. Please, please, please share this podcast with your friends. Put it on Facebook, on Twitter, on Snapchat. Rated on iTunes, all of it. I, I'm really grateful for the the time you spend on that. And please send me your feedback and your guest recommendations at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. With that, here's Ben Thompson. 
So Ben, you're a guy who, a dude who lives in Taiwan, I think is the technical term for, for your life. And you've <laughs> yes, become, right. in the last couple of years, I think the leading analyst at the intersection of the media and technology and business. And it seems like an obvious question, but I'm, I'm curious how. What, when did you start Stratechery? Why did you start Stratechery? What is your path to being who you are now? Well, there's a there's a short answer and a long answer. I like long answers. The this is short... a podcast. <laughs> if it well, could be the rambling, short answer is that really I started. Ideal. I am an excellent rambler, well accomplished. All right, we're in good uh, shape. Then. Both, both both speaking and writing, as anyone who has has seen my psych. Settle in, audience. <laughs> I started Chitakuri in 2013. It was so just just a little bit over three years ago. So I w- as you mentioned, I live in Taiwan, and I actually started it not just to have a blog to kind of pipe up on. I, I've, I've like probably a lot of people have started many of those over the years. You know, they, they go really strong for, for a month or two and then they kind of peter out. In this case, I started the blog with the specific goal of building into a business. And part of it was, I thought there was an opportunity. I mean, of course, lots of people have blogs, but there's so many blogs with technology, but they're all very product focused. There weren't very many blogs talking about, as you mentioned, the business side of things and, and kind of the strategy side of things. And so I thought there was a market there. But two, I had been in Taiwan before. My wife was from Taiwan. We wanted to go back at some point. We came back to the U.S. I went to business school at Kellogg Business School, worked at Apple and at, and at Microsoft. But we wanted to get back, but there really weren't the sort of jobs for me in Taiwan. All the expat jobs all the, that, that someone of my education level and experience would have worked at had long since left, you know, gone to China for, for the most part. And so if I was going to hack it here, I kind of needed to create something for myself. So I thought this saw this as an opportunity. My, my kind of role model in this was a guy named John Gruber who is a well-known tech blogger, primarily focused on Apple. And I'm like, well, if he can do it, I think I can do it. And I, you know, I kind of had an inkling I might have a better chance just because I was focused more on the business side, which meant there might be a possibility to appeal to investors and people who would be able to make money from, from what I wrote. So that was, that was kind of the goal. And I thought it would take maybe five years to get to a sustainable level where we could pull it off. And I actually ended up making it my business within a year in 2014 and actually almost exactly two years ago. I want to, I want to stop you there because I want to ask why you thought this was an opportunity. So I'm also at one point in my life decided it would be fun to start a blog and that also started me on my career path. But that was back in the hell was it now? 2003? Yeah, 2003. Jesus. I, I know exactly. I know exactly when it was because for a very long time I viewed you and Matthew Glacius as kind of you know, we were all about the same age. You know, I was classic work at the newspaper in, in college and wanted to be a, a Where did you go to college? I didn't want to go through. I went to the University of Wisconsin mm-hmm. in Madison. And th- I looked at you two as there, but for a lack of hustle and keeping up, keeping up my blog, go I. And, and to see you guys kind of go forward in your career path and knowing we were at the same age and like, and you kind of felt like that was kind of the golden era of blogging, right? Wait. I mean, you, there was you and, and, and Matt on, on the uh, political side, there's people like John Gruber on the tech side, uh, Kotke. For a long time, I thought I missed that. That is exactly my question. So, so the conventional wisdom on this has been that there was this golden era of blogging, this first mover period. And, and I think people roughly think of it as 2001-ish when the post-9-11 blogging began and then into 
03, 04, 05, around the first sort of presidential election in 04 that blogs were a really big part of. And there was a feeling that, that back then people could break in through blogging, that the media was the established media institutions like the Washington Post or, or the smaller magazines were beginning to take notice of it and trying to think about could they absorb these bloggers, hire them, start their own blogs, bring in people who knew how to do that. And as that happened, as the Washington Post now has dozens and dozens of blogs, as a lot of bloggers like Andrew Sullivan for a period, or or you could argue me and Matt with Vox, spun out and did things that were bigger and more scaled and more professionalized. The thing that you would hear in the sort of every other month, the death of blogging think piece was that it was now not possible in the way that it had been before to break through, to just start a blog from nothing on your own, on your own little corner of the internet, get readership because you used to be able to get it by doing links and being in conversation. Now you had to be built for scale. It had to be social. It had to be search engine optimized. And that was stuff that was much, much harder for an individual to do. And and you not only did it, you actually made it profitable, which at least in terms of running an individual blog is something that, that most of us who were doing it early on never accomplished. So what about that did you look in and say, okay, there's an opportunity here? And what was your theory of growth? How did you think people would find this little part of the internet called stratechery? Well, I think the big difference is actually what I write about. And that's that I started from day one with a very specific business model in mind. And my editorial product was intimately connected with what I perceived as how I was going to monetize going forward. And this is something I've written about repeatedly that I think publishers need to get much better about instead of this traditional model where I'm just going to write and then figure out how to monetize later or, or just slap on some advertising, which if you think about it is how newspapers have operated for, for millennia. The, the editorial side kind of does what they want. And then they just trust that the people on the other side of the wall are going to pay for it. Those days were coming to an to an end. So, so to set that aside for a moment, I would actually dispute that it's harder to get reach now. The reality is it's much easier to get reach with things like Twitter and Facebook and the ability to have your content spread far and wide. The the speed with which you can reach a huge number of people is exponentially faster than it was back in the yachts when when you got started. I, I think and, that's right. And by the way. The flip side of it, though, and the reason why it seems like a bad thing from the traditional blogging perspective is because because of that, because there's now there's so much more content on the Internet and you're not just competing against a small pool of like minded folks. You're literally competing against the entire world. The addressable market thing, you know, it goes both ways. The problem is that that destroyed advertising as a viable business model for any sort of site that did not have scale. No, but let I mean, me, it let was, me push wasn't you on a great that. business model. Let, to begin let me push with, you back but... one second because before we get into the advertising part of it, I think when most people look at this, and the reason I'm pushing you is because I want people, and I get this question from people all the time, like, can I still start a blog? Is there still a way to do this? And you have. And so I, I want to focus a little bit on the editorial side for a minute. What you just said is all correct. It is much easier to get reached today. But there is so much more. The question isn't how will people find me in the way that I think it, it really was in 2004 when would you go to technorati.com and look there? I mean, there, there really wasn't a, right. a distribution mechanism that made any sense. The way my blog got found is I emailed a college student at Harvard named Matthew Iglesias whose blog I liked and I begged him to link to mine. And he did that like three or four times. And then eventually I got an Instapundit link and that was a big deal and a Kevin Drum link and that was a big deal. I mean, and you built it 
in this person-to-person way that at the very least, if you're a human being, makes a kind of sense. There's someone you're talking to. There's someone you're trying to get to notice you. Now there is so much more. It is so much bigger. The gatekeepers are not some kid at Harvard. They're people running much bigger websites. So how do you stand out in that world? How do you get it so that not only will things go viral, but just in the crush of things that other people are producing that are heavily optimized for these social networks, for search engines, for all these distribution mechanisms. When we started, we were doing something genuinely new that just didn't exist. And so what distribution mechanisms existed were not that flooded yet. But now they're pretty flooded. I mean, there's just a ton of stuff being pumped into everybody's channels, as you've written about many times. So what was it you saw there that was the way to get seen, even though, yes, the distribution channels were clear. How do you stand out in them? There's two parts and they interact. The first part, and it sounds kind of trite and simple, but it's by far the most important thing, is you just have to produce stuff that's really good. And oh, well, the fuck. way I got the way I <laughs> well the, the well the way the way I put it is the most important article that you write on your blog is the second article someone reads. And what do I mean by that is you, someone will follow a link and they will they will see that article. They go, wow, that's pretty good. If that person clicks on the header, so they see the rest of the blog and they read the next article, if that next article is also really good, then you've established something meaningful. With it. You have the inkling of a relationship with that, with that reader. And so one thing I took a lot of care of at the beginning was to have a, a pretty distinct site design. I mean, it's still very bloggy, but there's orange components, and I have these hand-drawn drawings that I do that are pretty distinct. I do them less now than I did at the beginning. But... Part of that is so maybe they'll click through once and then maybe a week later they'll click through again. I want there to be a visual reminder. Oh, I've been on this site before. I remember seeing something good before. And it's all about that second time the person lands on your site and and they start to develop an assumption that there's something good here. And to that end, and this gets to the business model part of it too, I didn't push out tons and tons of posts. And again, with advertising, the framework, the mindset is, and this is, I think, where, where Andrew Sullivan got in trouble when he went independent because he was still in the advertising mindset. You got to pump out volume, pump out volume, pump out volume. And the problem is there is an inverse relationship between quantity and, and quality. And so from the beginning, I was super focused on making sure I had super high quality pieces because I was more concerned about that second article than I was about getting people to come back again and again and again. That's at the core. But then the second thing is, is the, no different than you emailing Matthew Iglesias. I mean, the, the, the person that gave me the biggest jump at the beginning was the guy I mentioned before, John Gruber. He has a very well-read well blog. So um, I emailed him maybe two or three weeks uh, after I'd started or maybe a month after I started. I wanted to make sure I had some volume of content before I reached out to him. And he had actually just recorded a podcast similar to this where he recounted his kind of origin story and that sort of thing. And I said, hey, I found your story super inspiring back when you did it. I wish I had done it then, but I'm doing it now. Anyhow, if you want to take a look, take a look. And I didn't hear back from him for maybe three or four weeks. And suddenly I got an email of the blue. And, and John's kind of famous for being a very curmudgeonly perfectionist about things. And he pointed out how I'd used a word wrong on my blog. And then he went into like the whole etymological history of the word and how he used to make the same mistake and da 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 And I kind of knew that I might be getting a wink from him. And so he does big articles and he does short winks. I thought it'd just be a short wink. So I kind of sat on his site waiting for it. And not only was it a big article, but he actually spent a paragraph saying, this is the best new blog I've come across in years. There's three really good articles to start with. 
this is really good, da 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 da. And he's like, but for the first time, Ben wrote an article that I disagree with. <laughs> he spent <laughs> like 700 words saying why I was wrong. But I, of course, got a ton of views. But for Twitter followers, I went from like 500 to 1500, basically overnight. And from then on, you know, that got into enough influential people's kind of readers, RSS readers, whatever it might be, they still exist, particularly in tech. And then I started getting more and more links. I started getting stuff on on Twitter. And it's just been a slow and steady growth since then for the most part. All right. And so then I think that's... But the key, the key, mm-hmm. the, 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 key, the, key, the key, though, is I didn't just reach out to him with like a bunch of crap on my blog. Like I, I made it so that there was multiple evidentiary points that he shouldn't just link to one article if uninteresting, but he could feel good kind of entrusting his reputation to endorse this site. That's been the core the core thesis behind how I've grown, I think, from, from, from the beginning. There's something interesting, I think, in that evolution, and in particular, the, the evolution of blogging and, and your theory on scale there. So when you look at, I think, a lot of the early bloggers, they were content machines. I mean, Matt, when he was in college, was producing 25 to 30 pieces a day. I mean, many of them were quite short, but 25 to 30 distinct posts a day. And I remember always feeling super bad about merely being at like 10 to 15. It's like a, felt like a huge failure. <laughs> and back then, the way people followed your blog to a large degree, if they were going to follow it, was at a bookmark. And so the idea was that if you wanted people to keep coming back, if they're going to have a reason to keep coming back, there needed to be new stuff on the site for them frequently enough because if they came back and they had the experience five or six or seven times of come back and there was nothing there, then when they were screwing around at work, which is I think the way most people read blogs, um, when they were screwing around yep. at work, they were going to go somewhere that was a more reliable little dopamine hit. They were going to go somewhere that was more reliably going to provide them new content. So I think that early in blogging there was a real – push and and a real emphasis placed on having a lot of content up on your site very, very, very regularly. But you said something interesting here, which is when you got linked by Gruber, and this is real sort of deep in blog mechanics, so we'll see how many people are actually interested in this. But when you got linked by Gruber, you didn't tell me, oh, and I got a lot of hits, here's how many. The thing you actually just focused on was how many Twitter followers you got. And there are now these ways to follow a writer that do not really prize frequency. So if I follow Ben Thompson on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle, by the way, so people can follow you? At Ben Thompson. Well, there you go. <laughs> Who could have guessed? Blessed, blessed, by, blessed by the Twitter gods, yeah. But if I follow your Twitter handle, it doesn't really matter how often you tweet. Uh, I'm sorry, how often you write. I'm going to see what you what you do is going to get pushed to me. I don't have to keep coming back. So it's okay if you don't do anything all that frequently because I'm not having the experience of going to your site and being disappointed. What I'm having the experience of is I saw your site once, I liked it, I followed you on Twitter, and now occasionally you pop up in my Twitter feed and the thing you pop up with is really good. And that makes me glad I follow you on Twitter and and more likely to click on you next time you pop up in my Twitter feed. And I actually think that's a pretty profound difference in how people follow blogs or, or individual writers now. And it as I think is implied in what you're saying, leads to, I think, different conclusions about what sort of content rhythm makes sense for building an audience. I don't think the way you're doing it actually would have made as much sense early in blogging. I think the way we were doing it then was correct for the age of bookmarks. But I think what you're talking about now oh, I, I makes a lot agree, of yeah. sense for the age of Twitter. The bookmark point is is, is very profound. And I think there, there's something very powerful about that. 
I was just wrote about doing a lot of research and writing about about the origin of Facebook. And it was a very similar dynamic, this people like searching for updates. I think there's something absolutely very powerful about that. The, the other thing that the benefit that this had, too, is by being relatively Spartan in what I was writing, it created demand for more. And so what my business model ended up being was I had these free weekly articles and I continued having actually at that time it was two two a week. I continued having these free articles. But then if you were willing to pay, then I would also send you more stuff every day. So what I what I, what I call the daily update. And I wanted to be very careful that is it a paywall? Well, yes, it's a paywall because there's stuff that you have to pay to get. But I didn't institute the paywall by taking stuff away that people used to have for free, which kind of puts a bad taste in people's mouth. But rather it was if if you want to pay, then I will give you more stuff. And the way I kind of measured when I wanted to do it was looking at, and this kind of gets away from the truth, it goes back to your point, the bookmark point. I was measuring the number of people that visited the homepage of my site on days I didn't post. Because to me, those were people who were wanted more. They were checking to see if there was more there wasn't they were disappointed and if i could sell to 10 to 20 percent of the of those people then i would have something that could at least give me the ramen profitability so i want to I go back to the first point you made about why it worked because i actually think that that is the most important one and it's the the, the black box to everything you have to put good stuff up on the internet this was never going to work it doesn't matter how clever your your advertising or your business strategies it doesn't matter how cool your site design was if people didn't read your things and like them and what's a bit fascinating to me about you is, is to my knowledge, before 2013, you were not doing regular tech media business commentary. It's not like you were a reporter at the Wall Street I, Journal I, three, and you moved over. 368 followers on Twitter. Right. So I, I'm caught between two versions of this question, which is one is why are you good at it? But I think that's usually hard for people to answer. So a different way is what is your process like? What is the process by which – a strategy post emerges? What kinds of information do you read? What is your sort of approach to thinking through that information? What is the editorial process that creates, in your view, good work? Well, it's funny because in some respects, I almost feel the first one is 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 easier for me to answer. Well, go for that and, one. <laughs> well, yeah, it ties into both. And as you can imagine, I get some version of this of this question a lot. You know, people emailing, oh, I want to do what you do. You know, what, what, what should I do? And in some respects, my answer is like, well, first and foremost, you have to be completely immersed in tech from like junior high on. At the root of it, a lot of it starts there. I, I just I found technology fascinating out of nowhere. None of my friends, none of my family, I grew up in, you know, rural Wisconsin, had any interest or, or inkling about tech in the mid-90s. But I thought it was super interesting. For some reason, I was always attracted to the business side of things, which my family was, didn't have any business inkling at all. I mean, that's why I went to school and majored in political science because I didn't have any. Great major. It just didn't even. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> so uh, were, were, were you political science as well? I, I was. Although before that, I was at Santa Cruz where they sort of have a more radical department. So it's just called politics. Ultimately, I, I transferred oh, nice. to UCLA nice. and, was a, and majored in political science. It's funny, though. I, it's, this it's, is a total well, digression. But. I did not like political science in college at all. And later on, after college, as a political writer, it became an absolutely core part of my toolkit. And I think compared to most political writers, I like political science much more and have been very, very involved with things like the monkey cage and uh, have had political scientists on this show. But in, in college, when I took it, I was blogging and political science, the way it was somehow being conveyed to me, seemed totally arid and out of touch. And it was only later 
when I was able to curate a little bit more of my own experience there that I realized just how theory shaking and how interesting and, and useful of a discipline it was. So I've always felt that I probably somehow really mismanaged my academic path in political science. And I, I would have been better off if I had somehow figured out what I liked about it earlier. Well, I, th I think you turned out okay. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, well, it was it, it, it was worse for me. I went to school. I I, I was going to be. Uh, uh, I went to for mechanical engineering mainly because math was the hardest subject for me in school. So I presumed that was the most important. I had a very weird way of. Boy, is that things. not how I treated and, math? And, <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was funny. I went from mechanical engineering to uh, computer science. So I at least got enough to know that side of things. Then I went to uh, psychology and then behavioral science and lined up in political science. So you kind of see me going on the gradient further and further away from math as I went. But it, it's funny. When I was this sort of person where I would plan every single class I was going to take until I graduated every time I switched majors. And by the time I got to the fifth one, I'm like, this is stupid. I'm going to change my major again. I'm just going to take classes with professors that I like and like seminars and stuff like that. The moral of the story is probably obvious. I had a really fantastic last two years of college. You know, I was working at the papers, just taking these cool classes about stuff that I never would have thought I'd be interested in. And a lot of that stuff, to your point, has turned out to be very useful in the way it chased my thinking. But even at a higher level, that approach to life, this idea of the world is changing so much to plan where you're going to be in X amount of years is an exercise in futility. The worst thing that could happen is that you succeed and then you ended up in a totally wrong place. Better to kind of control yourself, work on yourself and trust yourself to seize kind of opportunities they, as they came along. And in, in some respects, that's the greatest thing I got out of my education was was having that sort of losing the rigidity and, and having that that sort of mindset. So meanwhile, all along, I, I'm, I'm following tech closely. So, so you it. went Never to college and learned to not to think too hard about your future. I like that. In some respects, in some, I mean, I guess I'm privileged enough to be able to do that. But, but I mean, meanwhile, I'm following tech. I'm super interested in it. But for some reason, it never even occurred to me to go into it. And this is despite the fact that during the dot com bubble and stuff. I'm like, it just that world, that that just wasn't my world. The way I grew up, that wasn't my parents' world. It wasn't the people around me world. And it just never even occurred to me. And I went to work for a political campaign after I graduated, and I was pretty idealistic. And I was in the school newspaper, and it's the newspaper at the which, time. Which that's campaign when I really did you work on? Habit. Uh, I worked on the Norm Coleman for Senate campaign against Paul Wellstone. Oh, yeah. Uh, the year Paul Wellstone died in a plane crash. Yeah, I remember that campaign. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, the reason I'm, I'm kind of sheepish about it is because I've I've actually quite changed my politics since then. But, you know, I grew up a conservative Christian, and so that's kind of the path I took. Now I'm a much more complicated view of the world, I would say. Actually, it's very early in that campaign. I was at a county Republican meeting in, in Albert Lee, Minnesota. And the dominant theme was Im was immigration and the vileness, frankly, of what was being said there and me having to sit there and take it and say, yes, yes, the mayor understands your concerns. If he's elected to Senate, he'll do this, blah, blah, blah. I was so disgusted by myself sitting there listening to that and having to appease it that I, I quit on the way home. Oh, wow. And so it's it's interesting because what's happening this year with like Trump and, and all this sort of stuff, zero surprise to me because th that – I saw that sentiment so up close and personal that when it became a movement, I, I wasn't surprised. So, but now, now if I can, I've, if I've I can major stop in that story for one second, I think it's so interesting that you, everything about that story, I think speaks so well to, to this moment in politics because Norm Coleman was a very, for the Republican party, moderate, 
somewhat centrist, very business-oriented politician. He's got a young staffer who is disgusted by this kind of xenophobia and is listening and is kind of telling these folks, your concerns will be heard. But if Norm Coleman had gone to the Senate, if he had been there for, for longer, because he forget, – forgive me if I'm misremembering this, but he gets beat by Franken, right? No, he won. Uh, Wellstone. No, no, Wellstone, no. In, in, uh, later on, he gets beat by Franken, yes. Oh, yes, right. for re-election. Yes. So you know, he would have been the kind of Republican who signed on to immigration reform efforts. Yep. And this part of the party was so suppressed. They were being told that they were heard, and they really weren't being heard for so long. There's just like this incredible building of pressure. And I think that there, there just was such a difference between the people running campaigns and the people running for office and the, and the base on that. And it's in that gap that you see the sentiments build that end up creating Trump. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I was talking to a friend of mine. We were both at the paper. It was actually, there was quite a crew. She's the head of Facebook's kind of government outreach now. But you know, we were just talking about how unsurprised we were. She's from Green Bay, Wisconsin. And the same sort of thing. Like, the, like if you were out in kind of the non-metropolitan areas of, of America, and it's honestly, it's, I think it, it helps me in writing about tech, believe it or not. I, I think I've, I was way early to understanding Facebook's power in part because I appreciated, I think, the way Facebook had penetrated this sort of like people who are the furthest away from tech as possible, sort of people I grew up with. That world is so incomprehensible to people on in big cities and on the coast. Like they literally cannot fathom why people support Donald Trump. They, they can't fathom. That's an extreme example, but there's all kinds of things. It just doesn't even compute. And, and it, it goes in both sides. I mean, the middle of America, and again, I'm using that term colloquially, but is just as much of a bubble as, as the coast. And I think it was a real benefit to me. To, this kind of is a long way to get back to how I do what I do mm -hmm. to have a, a totally bizarre array of experiences. You know, I mean, going, Growing up, like I said, went to a Christian school, then went to a big public university, then kind of fled, fled that, came to Taiwan, lived in a place where, you know, you really realize that what you think is black and white is very much gray. And if anything, that that ability to see shades of gray is a skill that that is really at the core of what I do. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. Having tough conversations with your kids is just part of being a parent. And sure, those convos might seem a bit intimidating, but they can also set your child up to go out there on their own. And one of those big talks should probably involve money, how to be responsible with it, how to earn it, and that it's not infinite. If you're looking for a way to put those lessons into action, you might want to check out Greenlight. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications of spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. My kid is only four, but a colleague of mine here in the Vox Media family uses the Greenlight card with his two boys, and he loves it. Plus, the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach kids money skills in a fun, memorable way. You can sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot hugging, honeycomb, arch support, 
anti-blister tabs, and cushion footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. But let's talk then about what you do. So what what is the process. So you go to business school. Then you said you worked at Apple and Microsoft. So I, I was in Taiwan. I was um, teaching English. And why did you go, uh, why did you, you know, go to Taiwan? A friend of mine had been here, mm-hmm. uh, or, or my best friend in high school. His brother had had been here. Said it was great. And so I, I thought I'd go for a year. Then I'd go back and go to graduate school and be like a professor. Like my, my that was just my family was more academically oriented that that was kind of the goal they had for me and like i said the the world of business and all that sort of stuff never even was on was even on my radar but i came here and loved it like within like a few weeks i'd already told my parents that i'm gonna stay another year i eventually did go back to graduate school but it was six months later i had a a wife and a daughter in tow and i was going to business school not to not not to graduate school so my wife deserves a ton of credit because this I, I was still obsessed with technology and finally she's like why don't you work in tech i'm like well blah, blah, blah. and then kind of like well i don't know why don't i and what's funny is in tech there's kind of a, a bad view of mbas generally like that they're you know they're they're a lot of hot air and, and waste of sky which i kind of shared that mentality because that was i was in the middle of reading all this sort of stuff for years but for me it was kind of the shortest fastest route to legitimacy in the u.s job market and it, it it paid off. That's exactly what I got what I got out of it. It turned out I really had a strong intuition and sense for a lot of core things about business. Things like I was a very systematic thinker. I saw things in systems and the way things interlocked and worked together. My weakness would be more on the detail side of things. Things like comparative advantage and that like which ties into that. It just came to me naturally. And business school really gave me the language to articulate these sorts of things that that it turned out I understood pretty well, just kind of intuitively. And now I had a language to put around it. Then I went to, for the summer I went to Apple and I worked at Apple University, which is not a university, but it's kind of this internal group at Apple that, at least at the beginning, it's kind of expanded since then, but was focused on kind of the top 200 at Apple, like preparing the next generation of leaders and managers for Apple. And kind of the core theme was what makes Apple, Apple? And what was the incentive structure at Apple? How was Apple organizationally aligned? How did Apple approach decision-making? What were some key turning points in Apple's history and how do they think about it and go about it? And I think the group has its pluses and minuses, but for an internship, for being there for 12 weeks, it was basically a crash course in how Apple saw the world, how they view technology. It could not have been a better sort of... Like I, I, what, it would was be, the what would be your one-minute summation of how they view the world? What makes Apple Apple? It sounds trite, but... Everything about Apple is organized, and they're getting away from this, I think, which is a danger, but really around making the best possible products. And they've been that way since day one, 
But over the last few years, as the buying power has shifted to the consumer and away from business, where consumers value that much more, they've been able to create a high level of differentiation that people will pay for. And they'll pay for it and they'll develop brand affinity and they can leverage that. And that creates tremendous leverage for Apple against carriers, against suppliers, against the music industry. And that's really the nut of what Apple does. They create tremendous loyalty amongst their customers by creating the best possible products, and then they leverage that. And they do that again and again. And to the degree that they struggle, it's when that leverage isn't there or when they're in areas where what they're good at doesn't necessarily apply, like cloud services, for example. And then you go over to the dark side. I do. And this was actually a purposeful choice. I kind of knew by the end of the summer, uh, I knew I didn't want to go back to Apple University. I told a friend this, which I'm really grateful for, because during the year at business school, and business school is a really warped environment where everyone's getting jobs, they're talking this sort of stuff, you're, you're panicking, am I going to be employed? So I think I might have tried to go back at some point. But, but I actually knew that summer that I didn't want to be there, because the problem is it was fundamentally kind of backwards looking. And it was a little too much preaching to the choir for my taste. And, and that actually concerned me even then. I mean, the problem with any sort of this university concept is once you put these cultural sort of ideas down on paper, they're going to start ossifying because now there's like there's a defined thing instead of something that's alive and dynamic. But also I thought the group was a little too cheerleady. I was looking at myself. And again, this goes back to my thing in college about choosing different majors. And the one thing you can control in a changing world is yourself. And so I had kind of taken the philosophy that different stages of my life, I was working on improving different parts of me. And it, it really came home to me that summer when I had some various difficulties presenting things and my final presentation on the project doing didn't go as well as it, as it could have, that I was pretty good at presenting other people's ideas. And I thought I had a, was good at coming up with my own ideas, but I was not good at all at presenting my own ideas. As a manager waiter and Microsoft waiter laid to me, he's like, sometimes, Ben, you're talking about H, but people are at A, and you need to understand and learn how to walk people through the path. And so I really wanted to go to Microsoft because, to me, at that time, I really thought I was an Apple sort of person. I was head of, like, the Mac club at school, and Microsoft to me, was the exact opposite place. They, they looked at the world totally differently. Their approaches were different. Everything was different. I'm like, I want to go there and see if, if I go there and be challenged every day, because I, I, I think I see the world differently than they do. And that will give me an opportunity to practice getting across my ideas and see if I can actually change people's, change people's hearts and minds. And so that was my motivation. I was kind of signing up in some respects for misery, but it actually ended up being a great experience. And I learned a lot. I got such an appreciation for scale. I got such an appreciation for how big companies operate, how incentives work at big companies, how they're organized. I mean, it was so much different than Apple, but it was different for very good and valid reasons. And Apple wasn't the only way to do things. I mean, Microsoft was in a kind of a tough spot then, but why were they and why were they making the choices that they did, even if they didn't seem like the choices that were right from the outside? And it, it's had a huge influence on my thinking on my thinking and writing. Actually, I mentioned the John Gruber thing. I, so I started Shitechery in, in, in 2013. I was still at Microsoft. Microsoft had a relatively lenient blogging policy, just you know, don't do something stupid, basically. In part because of the Gruber thing, Shitechery was going to be, become relatively well-known. I was feeling a little, a little angsty about it. It actually turned out that Microsoft's corporate strategy team reached out to me wanting to give me a job, which, which I appreciated. But like, I'm like, well, that, that's going to kill the dream because <laughs> they hire you to keep all your stuff right, internally. Yeah. So it's funny. So I was looking for another place to blog uh, or another place to work while I could still blog, which is hard. 
I was able to get a job with though with Automatic, who, who does WordPress.com, which is about blogging. So it ended up being being a great match. And I quit, left Microsoft. My last day was June 30th. And on July 2nd, Steve Ballmer announced this massive reorganization of Microsoft that I thought was a terrible idea. And I got three articles out of that. And then he bought Nokia, which I thought was a ridiculous idea. And that was actually the highest traffic day in the history of Chatechery because I wrote this article, the, this deal makes no sense. It was on everywhere. But that goes to show that was early. A one-day viral hit doesn't necessarily give you a lasting readership. And then Steve Ballmer quit. So I got Microsoft kind of like provided unbelievable fodder for like the first six months of my blog, especially Steve Ballmer. So I, I owe the guy a lot. So, so they trained you up. They taught you how to argue. They gave you a lot of freedom to build your blog, and then you turned around and you crushed them. <laughs> Actually, I don't think so, though, because I, I – and so this goes back to – I'm just thinking about this for a long time. And the way I think about what I do is I have a system in my head about how the world works in technology and the way things are. And so when when news happens, people think about it that – and this is how, how I do what I do what I do. You, like you do a bunch of research and you come up with a case and then you write it. And like, well, how do you write so much you do? I mean, so right now I'm doing – you know, I do four – about 1800 word pieces a week. But that's not how it works. The way the way it works is you have a pre-existing system about how the world works and piece of news comes, you pass it through the system and if it passes through unscathed that's easy. You can dash off 700 700 words about that no problem. But often it breaks and that's when it gets it or it doesn't make sense and that's when it's interesting. Most of the time there's something else going on. That's how you can make predictions or kind of think, oh, there's probably this going on, or what's, their, what's the company's incentives? How are they aligned? Why might they be doing this? And that's something interesting and worth talking about. And sometimes I'm wrong, or I haven't thought something through completely, or there's something new that I need to think through. And that's, that's the most interesting times. And that's often when I get kind of the more theoretical sort of pieces is thinking through what's my understanding of the world? How does this work? And so in some respects, what I've done at Shotechery is almost like a three-year-long, it's not a book, it's a journal of my intellectual journey of forming a worldview of how technology works. Fortunately, at the time, I already had this idea that companies were either kind of horizontal service type companies or vertical integrated companies. And Microsoft, you know, I was already that Microsoft at its core was a horizontal company that was trying to be a vertical one. And that was driving so many of Steve Ballmer's bad decisions. And um, I, Wait, I feel say, say pretty more on that because I think that um, I think that you might be at H and the audience might be at A. <laughs> Sorry. Well, well, basically, if, if uh, the classic example would be Apple versus Google, so Google is a horizontal company. They they have massive fixed costs on the back end. They have these huge server infrastructure. They have all the software they've written. Their search engine. They are economically compelled to leverage that across the or spread that across the the most people everywhere. So they want to be serving every single customer. They want to be because that spreads out their fixed costs over everyone. And then it goes hand in hand with the advertising model. What do advertisers want to do? They want to reach as many people as possible. So Google wants to be on every device, every OS, all that sort of thing. And where Google stumbled, I think, for a few years, I think they're starting to recover, was when they got so wrapped up in Android, they started competing on a vertical basis and it cost them. Like they lost Apple Maps, they lost things of like that. But in general, but that was later on. Microsoft was doing that first, making that mistake first. And the point, because I just want to clarify something, because I've read your stuff on this. So just, but but the point there, what they did with Android, you're saying, is that with Google, they want Google on every single device. They want it on every single computer. They want it in every single business. There's no one they don't want to sell to. And with Android, they began to have a uh, an incentive a to make their work, to to do their best work on their platform, 
not on the iPhone, not on exactly. You know, exactly. Whereas, whereas Apple, on the other hand, the reason iCloud exists is to differentiate the iPhone. Right. It's, it's to make the device more attractive so they can sell it at a profit. The problem is Google was making their devices more attractive, but their business model wasn't to sell it at a profit. It was to an empty victory and actually to a loss for the parent Google. I call it Android for a few years. Android was the tail shaking the dog in, in some respects. Right. And I think it was a fascinating charity they were running with Android. <laughs> it, it was. And, and, you know, and really the company and this is why it's so dangerous in general, I think, for horizontal companies to to get into sort of physical devices and those sorts of platforms, because it's such a totem pole, right? You can you hold an Android phone or, or you hold a device in your hand and it feels like it's so important that, that everyone wants to pitch in and help. But that's not that's not the way the company's organized. That's, that's not the way its economics work. That's not the way it's, its business works. And Microsoft was doing the same thing. They were focused on Windows. So Office was better on Windows or, or and they wouldn't release a touch version of Office because it wasn't ready for a platform for Windows. And everything's about Windows, Windows, Windows. But in this new world with mobile where, where PCs were only a fraction of the market, what they were doing was constraining their horizontal opportunity by favoring a shrinking part of the market. And what Sachin Adel has done, and I'm I'm a, a big admirer of his, is he's basically chopped off Windows, and they're off in a corner and they're doing what they want. But Microsoft is now very focused on being the best services platform that works great on iOS, works great on on Android, whether that be Office, whether that be their Azure Cloud Services, and it'll be kind of developer toolkits that they're building up. I think he's done a great job. So I, yes, I was critical of Microsoft, but the long way of saying, um, I think I've been a bit of a cheerleader. I think, especially over the last year and a half. We're going to take a little break now to talk about our sponsor, MeUndies.com. What listeners of long-form interview shows really love, I think, is a comfortable pair of underwear. I mean, you're sitting at home, you're listening to a long interview with Cory Booker or Grover Norquist, and I presume you're sitting there in underwear or pajamas or whatever, and you want that underwear to be soft. You want that underwear to be comfortable. That's why MeUndies.com is now a sponsor of The Ezra Klein Show. Their underwear is made out of modal, a fabric that is twice as soft as cotton, that is sustainably sourced. If you feel it, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. It is a much softer, much more exciting advance in underwear technology than, frankly, you've probably seen in some time. It's also just a nice internet experience. You can just set up a subscription, and then they will keep coming on a fairly regular basis, which does two things for you. One is it means that you continuously have have fresh underwear. The other is that it means you do not have to remember to go underwear shopping. And underwear shopping, I think, is basically nobody's idea of a super fun time. So go to MeUndies.com slash Ezra. Again, MeUndies.com slash Ezra. You get 20% off of your first order. You get $8 off if you get the subscription plan. Your first pair is free. You can send it back if you don't like it, if you don't think this is for you. But I, I doubt you'll do that. I think it's going to work out for you. Shipping is free in the U.S. and Canada. It's a great deal. It's great underwear. The fabric is super soft and it's going to make listening to the Ezra Klein show that much more enjoyable no 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 chafing during the second hour of a long interview so check it out meundies.com slash Ezra support the show upgrade your underwear drawer it's all going to be great all right back to the interview I, I want to pull back to the way you think and the way you write because something that I think it, it's something that I have thought a lot about in my career and, and I'm fascinated to hear you describe it the way you do so 
I come from blogging, but spent a lot of time when I got into journalism more formally. First at magazines, I was an intern at the Washington Monthly, then I worked at the American Prospect, and then in a newspaper. And what had struck me so much as the difference between being at particularly a magazine and what I had been doing just on my own was the deep fear in journalism of repetition. And you would have these editorial meetings. I think it was a fear driven by scarcity. You have a magazine, you've got 64 pages, you can only put so much into those pages. So you really have to have this brutal cutthroat competition for what makes it in. But you would have these discussions. And I remember an article being pitched and it being killed because some other very, very, very small magazine had done it five years ago. And this idea that I often thought of as the analog to the rational economic man the sort of perfect news consumer who had read everything and remembered everything. And so you had this incredible focus on always having new ideas, new news, new news hooks, new approaches, new profiles, that nothing that had been done before should ever be done again. What, what you do, and I think to some degree, certainly as a, as a blogger, but also I think even now in my own writing, what I do is you have – and tell me if I get part of this wrong, but a series of models about the world, aggregation theory, which we should talk about a little bit, or the Facebook epoch or others. And you watch what's happening and then apply different models to them and see how they fit. And so your site has a tremendous amount of repetition to it. And what you get out of reading it is not the newest information. You don't stay on the cutting edge of what's happening on technology exactly. What you get is a way of thinking about technology, which you're able to sort of outline how it works by applying it to a dozen or two dozen or three dozen situations. And so people begin to learn how to view a situation the way you would. And those strike me as very different kinds of journalism uh, or, or, or even if it, you know, I don't know if you call what you do journalism, but but I think it is and something that has begun to be very powerful, but wasn't possible until you were freed from the scarcity of print where you really did have to ask this question of if I'm not writing something new and bringing them something new, then then why am I not doing that given how little I can offer? And now the ability to just go deep and say whatever you want and just keep trying out the model a million times, I've actually found that very contrary to what people thought would happen, the the audience really wants that. The audience really wants to help thinking about things, not just help getting information. And that I think it is still an underserved market in, in journalism, in part because our products are not well designed for it. It's That's something we're trying to think about in card stacks and other things at Vox. How do you make these models? How do you unearth the rest of the iceberg of your coverage, which is, yeah, that little tip above the, above the waterline, that's the news. But it's everything underneath the model you're using to understand the news. It is actually really important and valuable, but is usually opaque to the reader. You nailed it. I mean, that's I think that's exactly what I do. And but I I will tell you, I still have that fear. Like that, like, am I repeating myself too much? And I, I get called on this by by some readers sometimes. Like I'll start linking back too often. As I said before, as I know before, and just it sounds odd. It's really hard because the problem is I live in this, right? I write strategically every day and I can remember almost everything I wrote. I mean, one of the things that benefits me is I, I just have a very good memory. So I wrote a thing today about, about kind of the BuzzFeed stuff. And I remembered this interview that, that, that Jonah Preddy gave, gave last year and I went back and watched it and, and incorporated it in the thing. But that's not the case for even my most dedicated readers. Like what, what they read, even if they read me every day, it's one of many things they're reading. So one, they're not living in it. So they're not going to feel a repeating theme as deeply as I will. 
But two, the other challenge is, especially with my free articles, where I, I'm liable to get lots of new readers because they, at this point they do spread pretty far. To what extent do I restate stuff that I said before for the new reader as opposed to the people that are reading it again? And, and I think the longer you go, the more of attention that is. But as far as, as what I do and what I offer, that, that's exactly it. And I think that gets at why I can, why I can charge money. I mean, uh, fortunately, there's, there's a sufficient number of people that – in some respects, they're, they're subscribed to my model, and they want to learn more about it, understand more about it. And that's kind of what I'm selling is is that view of the world. And so it's – and it is very different than traditional journalism. Like you, can, any piece of news will be out on Twitter. News is very valuable until it's posted, and then it's zero because what I do is is so intertwined with the way I think that makes it valuable but on the flip side, you know, it makes it hard to scale. I scale great as far as number of customers because I, I just sent her an email. But it's it's hard to scale as far as production goes because I'm one person and and I'm selling what I think. So so to, to dig into this question of repetition for a second, because I always think it's really interesting that you quote yourself and link back to yourself all the time. So so you you write a lot as I wrote back in the Facebook epoch as opposed to just restating whatever it is you want to do. This is something we've thought about a lot at Vox. I have encouraged my writers to reuse content they previously published on the site as often as they possibly can. We actually have a program internally that we try to republish evergreen pieces, pieces that are still relevant, at least one from every writer every two weeks. We've, we've written about this before on the site. And I don't want them to do that thing where they say, oh, I wrote this back in 2014 and here's a quote. Because I think it actually devalues perfectly valuable content to the reader. What you're telling the reader now is this is old. And I don't think readers care about that. But if you do tell them that, I think it primes them to not take it as seriously. I've always remembered back at the Washington Post for a while, I was at the Washington Post and I was also doing a column of Bloomberg View. And the way that the Bloomberg column worked was a Bloomberg column would come out, if I'm remembering this correctly, on Tuesday. And it would then be republished in full at the Washington Post on Wednesday. So there's a 24-hour exclusivity for, for Bloomberg, but it would, it would appear on the Post very, very shortly after and completely unchanged. So I remember I wrote a column about full employment. And a writer, a financial writer I really respect, I'm not going to call him out by name here, tweeted the, the piece. And he said, oh, this is a great piece by, by Ezra Klein about full employment. Really enjoyed it. Next day, the same piece publishes unchanged at the Washington Post. Same guy, and again, a really smart guy, tweets out, oh, my God, another great piece from Ezra. The guy's just on fire lately. <laughs> and not, he had read the two pieces. I mean, it's 24 hours apart. And I'll often have the experience of trying to look up the answer to a question and find not only did I know it, but I had done a whole piece on it three years ago. And I had forgotten not just the answer, but – writing about it, the fact that I had written on it, all these other things I had learned while writing about it. And it's just really given me a deep gut level belief that one of the deep fallacies in journalism is that people remember what we wrote at any degree yep. of precision. I used to have a, a history professor in college who had the rule of 90s, he called it. He said that 90%, I think it was, yeah, 90% of Americans forget 90% of everything that's happened in 90 minutes. And he was talking, I mean, in this case, he was talking about the difference between Americans who have a pretty short view of their history and Europeans who will go to war over things that happened hundreds of years ago. But I think in journalism, it's very much like that, that even I forget what I've written two or three or four or five months ago. And so there is this tremendous waste imposed by this belief where we don't want to reuse 
things we've done before because we think in some way we're cheating the reader. But actually, as I said to my writers, that 90% of our audience doesn't read anything any one of us writes. Then of the people who do it, they forget 90% of it in 90 days. And there is just a very strange, I think, cultural, almost guild-like bias in journalism against deriving value from the work we've already done. And it just means that this tremendous body of knowledge that we've created is effectively inaccessible to, to readers. And if we could find some way, this is so much what Vox is about, but and, and we've definitely not fully or even majority cracked the code yet, but if we could find some way to make this stuff more valuable to people, we would all be so much more efficient in doing our jobs. It's totally true, and it's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I mean, in some respects, I want to like I'm having I'm working with someone to kind of actually build out a proper archives page. It's a bit of a there isn't really one now organized by theme, but the reality is I think that's solving my problem now that I think about it and hear you talk because you're right. People, the number of people that will go back to look stuff up by topic or whatever whatever plans I have are are very very few. There's in the bias of got to find them. It's funny because it's almost like there's a time mismatch. In that us writers remember our whole catalog, whereas readers are incredibly biased towards what was just published. And so they're thinking and looking for something on a time scale that's totally different than what we are thinking of. And yeah, I, I get myself in trouble by being too deferential to what I wrote before. And it messes up the flow of what I write. And it sounds it sounds weird and pushing back. And, and I think I think it's a really great point. So, so I want to talk then uh, – I think this is a either extremely bad or not that bad. It, it basically doesn't matter. Segue into this question of advertising models because I think something where a lot of your theories have converged is around how do you make money producing content on the internet now and what does it look like to do that? You have written before that you see there as being basically I think two approaches for publishers at work. One is the approach that you have, where you have a reasonably niche product that is exceptionally distinct, and so you can get people an exceptionally high value for the people for whom it is uh, suited, and you can get them to pay a reasonably high price to be part of it. And so you have a, a direct line of revenue that is focused on the uniqueness of the product. And the other way is related to your, the arguments you made about aggregating massive audiences, which is that you need to create some huge kind of scale distributed across many, many, many platforms with a business model that is very tied to that. And, and I'd like to hear you talk about, define that probably much more precisely than I have, but also talk about why you think the middle of that has fallen out. Well, I, the, the challenge is that the world that we're living in is one where there's other products, but basically Facebook is the front door of the internet for the vast majority of people. And you combine that fact that people are already in Facebook, that they're in a feed where Facebook can place an ad that takes over the entire screen. Think about that. Facebook's ads literally take over the entire screen of the device that we're looking at, and no one gets bothered by it. Like, it's the most incredible ad in the history of digital. You add to that the fact that Facebook knows who we are, where we live, what we like, what we're interested in. They know it perfectly because we told them. And so they have this incredible targeting ability. And then they're building out all this capability to track conversion, not just conversion of digital things, but conversion all the way down to like physical purchases in stores, which they are building out. And the question becomes, why 
as an advertiser would you go anywhere else? That is the long-term trend. And Facebook, meanwhile, has you know 1.5 billion people. The last quarter, Facebook increased their inventory, increased their ad load per person. So everyone started seeing more ads. And they increased the price they charge per ad. Those things should go against each other. But the engine they've created is so incredible and they can prove to advertisers that it's worth paying way more for a Facebook ad because we can prove to you that it works. You're getting a return on it. And in the long run trend, like that's where advertising that's where advertising is going. So and this is the continuation of a trend. I mean, back in the day, newspapers had have had like a geographic monopoly. Like where else were advertisers going to go? They basically got the advertising free. The internet made that all go away. Everyone's competing in the same market. So what you got were these ad networks that would track people by cookies and they'd advertise across all kinds of publications. That's where content and ads really got divorced. That was the first divorce. And now the second kind of separation is why put your again, why put your ad on these ad networks where they kind of might know who you are, your ad kind of might be seen, might not be seen, or put it on Facebook where you can be very, very precise. The long and short of it is that you're you're competing against Facebook and no content site is going to win that battle. They already don't control their ads because an ad network does for the most part. And I know Vox is trying to build up a scale business and do that sort of thing. But in general, it's a very hard thing, particularly for even smaller publishers. Those are the ground rules. Like that's just the way things are. And people talk about, oh, these ad networks are so terrible and they put a seven page like and, and they blame publishers and publishers lost control a long time ago. I mean, people talk about, like David Carr and wrote, wrote a column. He's the one that uncovered Facebook instant articles. And he's like, I think he said something to the fact that publishers are going to become serfs in, in Facebook's kingdom. The problem was that had already happened. Like that ship had sailed. And so given that, you have a choice to make. So one, either you break out of the bubble completely in that people go to you. And I call this being a destination site. So th- this is my model, as you said. It's a place where people actually go to strategy.com or they will receive my emails in their inbox or they go to you know whatever site it may be. And then these people value you highly. Before they gave you a dime of money, they gave you their effort to not just open up Facebook and land on your site. They, they chose to go to your site actively, and, and that's meaningful. And the mistake a lot of publishers make is – for people that are meaningful, you need to charge more, not less. You need to maximize your revenue per customer because you're not going to make it up at, at scale. Like there's not that many people that are going to reach out to you. On the flip side, the internet's so big, you need to get just an unbelievably small fraction of, of the world and you can have a very, a very nice business. So you can monetize by subscriptions like I do. You can monetize with very highly targeted native advertising if you have a sort of feed. And this is you know where you're, you're immersed in the content and every now and then it's an ad that fits the feed who's an example of a that very focused product well i mean i think the the easy example and i, I kind of hesitate to go there it's another kind of one person thing but it's it's kind of the person that actually i already mentioned him who kind of pioneered native advertising was was gruber and basically he's all about apple stuff and he's a feed he posts lots of links and occasional articles and people go to his site and they just read they read through it and once a week one of those things is an advertisement it's it's about a product or whatever and you read it as you read everything else so you're paying attention to it and because everyone knows that all the hardcore apple people read that blog if you're an apple developer or an apple product or microsoft advertising azure that's where you go because you will get a great return on it. And he could charge like, you know, 10,000 bucks a piece or something like that, which is for one person blogger is, is, is pretty powerful. A lot of the best examples are, you'll notice are very small. And that's because business isn't just about revenue. It's also about the cost side. 
and you have to keep your costs in line with what your revenue can sustain. And can I push you on that for a second? That yeah, doesn't absolutely. feel to me like why those are small. I mean, I thought you said this a couple minutes ago, and 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 it was it was profound. It's something I think a lot about at Fox. But another way of saying destination is saying unique. That there is something you are doing on the internet that no one else is doing, and. If what makes you unique is the outlook of Ben Thompson or the outlook of John Gruber, I don't think the binding constraint there is necessarily the cost side. I think the the really binding constraint there is that it is very hard to find people you can add who will not begin to dilute what you're doing. I think you're right. I mean, when yeah, I went I mean, there's from, other I, I I've thought a lot about this because I went from Ezra Klein to to Wonk Blog to to Vox and. At each stage, I've wanted to do something different, so I'm very happy with those changes. But in terms of the uniqueness of my voice, my voice is less frequent. My voice is more diluted. My work is as a, just as a writer is worse because I do less reporting. It's not like I've been able to find or not like I've even tried to find a bunch of people who are just me. That I don't think is possible. I'm a weird snowflake like we all are. But that you have to make a decision about becoming, I think, less distinct. Your branding has to be – it can't be at that point your own opinions. It has to be something in the way you approach topics or the technology you're using or you know, what is a service you're providing. So like Wonkblog could have a unique brand in terms of it was laser-focused on economic and domestic policy or Vox can have a unique brand in that we tried to, to do this thing around explaining the news. But it can't be as unique a brand as what Ben Thompson thinks about the day. I think that's exactly right. It's something I've thought a lot about, like would I ever grow trajectory? How could I grow it? And that's the fundamental question that I have no idea how to answer is how could I find someone else that would be additive to the to the reason people pay. And again, it's not because I'm the smartest person in the world. It, it's just that what I offer is very sharply defined. And even if there's someone that I think is fantastic and I bring them on, some number of people aren't necessarily going to agree with that. And, and yeah, your edges get softened. And when your edges get softened, you don't stand out as much and, and you start to lose that quality. I think, I think it's a good point. And the cost structure helps. So, so then there's the other side. So talk about your theory of what the big publishers are doing. There are some number of sites that if they are destination sites can survive, will survive. Like, I mean, everyone talks about the New York Times, which is kind of unfair because they're, you know, they're the New York Times. But because they're the New York Times, like they are going to get some amount of revenue just by people who care about the New York Times and go there. And, and they have subscriptions and they have premium advertising that they sell directly. In the long run, though, if you don't bring to the table a massive brand like they do, and brand brand matters more than ever in some respects, because it matters because it's like me having a, a relatively distinct design on my page and having those handwritten pictures. Like you have to build an association in people's mind that you're not just another undifferentiated piece of content. Yeah, one of the best things we ever did was Vox Yellow. That that was totally, like totally. the greatest move. No, that Ted Ted that's Irvine and Warren Schultz exactly get all thing. the credit in the world for that one. I completely agree. If you want to go big, if you want to scale, then you have to basically be the exact opposite of me. You need to look – You need to, it goes back to that horizontal versus vertical thing in some respects. I'm a vertical enterprise. I do stuff to differentiate my core products so people pay me money. I, I have a free podcast, exponent.fm. How it monetizes in the long run is people – 
you know, signing up for, 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 for my newsletter. On the other hand, if you have scale, you need to spread that over as many things as possible. To limit yourself to just your site, to just your own and operated properties, is to be like Microsoft limiting themselves to Windows when there's this entire new universe of things out there. So you need to be way more aggressive about getting your stuff out there, which means your stuff, by extension, needs to be simpler. It needs to be text and images because text and images are super portable. They can go on Snapchat. They can go on Facebook. They can go to all these different places. Creating content is expensive. It's a fixed cost. So you need to spread out that fixed cost over as many places as possible to get a return from it. And so the more aggressive you are about being out there and taking your pennies from Facebook and taking your pennies from from Snapchat and and getting your stuff on YouTube and all these different sort of sort of places, the better chances of success you're going to have. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing. Like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think is the revenue model? Because I, I, I have an argument here and, and something that is implicit in, or I should make ex- explicit what I'm, what I'm thinking about here because it's one of the things, I think you and I have, have talked about this and even argued about it a bit in the past. You talk about how Facebook is the great ad of this generation. And obviously there are others. Snapchat is, is really getting into this game and others. But the big problem is, and as, there, as anybody who has Facebook knows, Facebook ads are really bad. Not the underlying ad technology, the targeting is tremendous, the way it fills up the mobile screen is amazing, but it is a space where nobody really knows what to do with it yet. 
there's very rarely, um, not never, but reasonably rarely great brand advertising campaigns. You get a lot of direct sales on Facebook, a lot of, hey, come here and buy this thing on Amazon, but not as much of what you see in a GQ or an Esquire or a Cosmopolitan or even in commercial breaks where it's just Coca-Cola trying to make you like Coca-Cola. Not that it never happens. Coca-Cola definitely works with Facebook, but that's a place where I don't think it's been quite figured out. And it, it seems to me, this is certainly true for Vox Media, it's definitely true for BuzzFeed, definitely true for Vice, true for a lot of them. It, it seems to me that it used to be that what these big publishers sold, because there were always things that were bigger than the newspaper like television, but what these big publishers sold was space that you couldn't get anywhere else. You had the New York Times, or I grew up in, in Orange County, so the LA Times or the OC Register, and they had control of this space, and that was their fundamental product was that space. And now what you have, as you said a minute ago, are these publishers who are in an incredibly crowded content marketplace, a content marketplace that is more crowded than it has ever been in human history ever before, have somehow or another figured out how to create content that stands out, that wins that competition, and often increasingly are developing competencies across a pretty large array of platforms. So to just speak for, for Vox right now, like, we publish not just to our website, but to Facebook and Facebook Instant Articles and Facebook Video and YouTube and podcasting and Snapchat. And, and we're developing experience, Google AMP, with all of these different approaches. And it feels like all of a sudden we've moved from owning the space to increasingly competing as ad agencies. And, and the confidence that we are selling is that you're taking what you're doing on the editorial side, all these learnings about the formats and approaches and headlines and visuals and content constructions that work in these different places and how they're, they have to be different for these different places. And you're selling that expertise. And I think it's why you see at all these groups, the creative side, the, the sort of internal ad agencies are the fastest growing part of the business. That in a world where you're right, Facebook owns the more valuable space, what you end up having is people who do content actually selling their expertise doing content. And in some ways, that actually has always felt to me like a more, I don't want to say sensible business model, because the old business model where you have monopolies over local advertising areas was an amazing model. You made a lot of money. But it's a much more unified model, right? Much like what you do is you are selling the thing that you know how to do. It was a little bit weird when the thing that the New York Times was good at was reporting the news, but the thing it made money on was letting people list homes, and in, certainly compared to the banner advertising period in, in internet advertising, this has felt much more solid to me just because I can understand what is the value we're providing to an advertiser who works with our native agency, which is we have you know, figured out a bunch of stuff. We will help them figure out that stuff. And then whether their ad is on Facebook or Snapchat or wherever, that ad has a, has a better chance of actually being seen. No, I completely agree. And, and I've been very positive about about BuzzFeed and about Facebook. And, and I think something that people, especially in the early days, didn't appreciate was, in particular people raised in the old paradigm, was the importance of getting, of having a business model. Like you, good journalism is not about having this artificial separation between editorial and advertisement. It is first and foremost being being independent, being able to fund yourself. Because as soon as you're dependent on someone else, like you're going to have a problem. And I think your point is well made that right now, because you are great at creating content and BuzzFeed is great at creating content and understanding what, what spreads and what sells, to leverage that ability and to sell that is a good business model. And, you know, BuzzFeed has been profitable, you know, pretty consistently. I don't know Vox's finances. Um, you can tell me if you want, but I think don't think you will. Um, we are also profitable. But... 
quite consistently. It's good. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. Thank God. There, there's, there's two. So no, I completely agree with you. It's a it's a it's a good model, and uh, you know I've been. I think what BuzzFeed and Vox are doing are really smart, and it makes sense. You guys know what works. You know how to make content. BuzzFeed is very famous for really understanding how how virality works and being able to sell that skill set to tell an advertiser that. Yes, you could go buy an ad yourself, but we will we will do it for you and we'll get all this free lift on your spend because people you won't just get the, the what you spend on Facebook. You will get people actually spreading it on on their own. And it makes it makes a lot of sense, but two problems. One is it doesn't scale on the production side. Like you have to actually go and make ads. And now you're doubling up the content creation problem, which the problem with creating content is you have to actually create the content. And now you also have to create ads, and it, and so you have trouble scaling to the degree necessary. And two, Facebook is going to get better, and various ad agencies are going to get better at making Facebook ads. And so now you're almost in this other arena of competition where you're not only competing among ad agencies, but there's like an extra cost involved that in you're kind of at a cost center you're in in a bad position. And so my suspicion is that in the very long run, and I kind of think BuzzFeed might be pivoting here, frankly. I th- you know, they recently had the FT reported that their financials weren't as good as they could be. They've denied it. But I, I think there might be a pivot going on there where they're more and more focusing on getting content out on do- that people will click on out on the platforms and letting the platforms do the monetization for them. And I think because at the end of the day, Facebook needs really good content on their platform. Snapchat needs really good content on their platform. Something YouTube figured out very early, like YouTube was, was much more aggressive than than Facebook has been or other Vine or any other ones have been about making sure their top creators were making money because that that's what makes the platform in, in the long run. And it is in the long run in Facebook's interest and in Snapchat's interest and in YouTube's interest and in these various networks' interests to create a true platform. A true platform is one where the participants in the platform, where whoever owns the platform is taking a minority of the revenue and the people who are building on top of you are, are, are splitting the rest. And in the long run, I think that is whatever models does come out. I think it will come from the platforms. And and are you putting yourself at the mercy of Facebook? You are. But the truth is Facebook's incentives are aligned with publishers much more than I think people in publishing and in journalism appreciate. And so they view Facebook as the enemy in kind of this very uneasy alliance because Facebook gives them so much traffic. But I I suspect in the long run it's going to be more of a savior. I think that something that is an interesting byproduct of that, right, because that is one part of the business, and I agree with what you said about the challenges of it. It would definitely be cleaner if the way journalism worked or had ever really worked was that you just sold your product to the consumer, and it just, for whatever reason, it's a, it's a strange industry. It's never been that. But well, the, the thing the, that the I, problem is, is there's, there's so much competition. Sorry, I just right, yeah, yeah, of course. I interrupted you. <laughs> well, it's also, I mean, this is a, a slightly different topic, but... I mean, when you look at where people get information from, from newspapers, from magazines, from websites, from Google, from Facebook, and you, you just really go down the line. Almost everywhere we get information, television, radio, that is not books is something where we have created a platform that advertising works on. And I've always wondered what is the, 
what is what is a world look like where our informational life was not also the thing that supported advertising because there are well, a million decisions that have been made in terms of how these platforms work in terms of what is the cadence of publishing in terms of you know i think uh, in a lot of these not so much what gets published i think advertiser influence over literal editorial content is usually pretty low but I do think there's a fascinating it, – one, it is amazing just how much of our informational life advertising is responsible for, not just things like the New York Times, but things like your Google searches and what it would look like if everything was some kind of direct sale. The reason why everything is ad-supported is because at the end of the day, the incentives of the advertiser are perfectly aligned with the incentives of the journalist. The journalist wants to reach as many people as possible. That's why we get into this business. And the advertiser wants to reach as many people as possible. And I will tell you, people look at me as this sort of model. Oh, look at Ben Thompson. He charges people directly. I wish everyone was like that. And frankly, I often find it very frustrating because I will write something and I would like it to be broadcast to the world. I like at the end of the day, like with any writer, there's a certain streak of like narcissism and like wanting to change the world that certainly goes into doing what you do. And I can't, I can't reach the world because I need to make money. And, and in some respects, the way I make money works counter to why I do what I do. So for journalism, I think it's very natural that advertising aligned with it. And if you go to things like Google, they want the more people, the better. Advertising is a great fit. All these services, a social network is only as valuable as the number of people that are on it, which means it has to be free, which means it has to be ad supported. But that's okay because the incentives are aligned. And so people talk about these fanciful worlds where we're going to pay for our social network and I wish we could pay for journalism and I could pay for all this sort of stuff. The reality is it doesn't work, one, because there's so much competition. Two, news is non-rivalrous. It's not exclusive. Once it's out, it's out. But then three, actually, most people don't want it to be like that. I think that's right. And, and I do agree on the broad point that, I mean, the reason everything is built off of advertising is that the model actually works. And while I don't think the, the incentives are perfectly aligned, I think they are, they are more aligned than people on some level even want to appreciate. Well, it just varies what levels you look at. In some respects, yes, you can see the tension between advertising and editorial. But when it comes to like the, the real incentives, like why do you and I – put our words up there on the internet for everyone to read. At the end of the day, that is actually very, very close to why an advertiser puts an ad up. I think there's, I think there's a lot to that. Although I do think in, in this era of advertising, unless you're talking about the Gruber-style advertising, you do have a question of, I think a really big problem for a lot of journalists is that even if what they think they're doing is putting up content that they want a lot of people to, to read or to watch, in fact, they tend to actually care about feedback from a very small slice of their audience, which is heavily composed of their peers, their sources, people they know. I mean, that's the feedback they really care about. And I think it creates, uh, I think we too often write for our nearby circles as opposed to actually for the audience who, who needs something quite different. But, but that's sort of a different. You no, know, there's one more thing because you said this before and you're kind of blogging his dead piece when Andrew Sullivan went away and, 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 uh, Josh Roberts went on a similar Twitter rant about this, about asking, I miss the days of loyal readers, something to that effect. And th that, that is a positive of my model. My readers are so loyal, they pay me money to write. 
the context totally varies in how you look at it. Like if you want to write for a small group of people that read everything you write and do it consistently, you have to have the business model to match. And in that case, the business model is, is definitely not going to be advertising because advertising, it has to drive towards scale. And, th- and this is the big thing what we talked before, this, this massive bifurcation. Any journalism shop that's stuck in the middle is going to be in trouble. Like you have to go to the extreme and, and that's a big effect. Of the internet is it's driving to the extremes on either side. I'm trying to think back to what I wrote about Andrew Sullivan, but I don't think I would have said I miss the days of loyal readers because our data suggests to me that the readers are very, very loyal. I mean, you said this a couple minutes ago that brand matters more than ever. I think one of the really big surprises to me about starting Vox was how much of the brand ended up mattering, how much of the brand we built or didn't build, how much of it got got entrenched at the beginning. But when I talk to people, how much they, you know, when I go speak on college campuses or whatever, how much they see themselves as Vox fans in ways that, you know, I always as a, you know, and I'm a professional journalist, so I think of myself as fans of writers. I think of myself as as fans of even some products. But I rarely think of myself as uh, as a huge fan of a of an institution that is very big, right? There are people I like a lot at the Atlantic, and so I end up really liking the Atlantic. But I don't think of myself as like an Atlantic person. But one thing that I do think is interesting there, we look at this from a lot of different perspectives, and I, I think that we have really underestimated how loyal a lot of readers who are coming in from from social networks are. I think behind a lot of those things that you see in the death of blogging is a somewhat unquestioned assumption that the readers who came because they were checking links were loyal and engaged in a way that readers that come from social or not. But but when we look at return, what we call return velocity from readers who come in from places like Twitter or Facebook versus people who are coming directly from to the homepage or seem to have us bookmarked, the differences are not what you'd expect and sometimes don't even go in the direction you'd expect. The other thing that I think is interesting that you're seeing with a lot of the publishers, I mean, this podcast to some degree is actually part of, of, of this trend, is you know if you think about your model, what you have is a product built reasonably for scale, which is your your free piece a week, which is the way it is designed. Is it it is designed to travel? You can read that really not knowing anything about your previous work, and it, it works out great. And then you have these other things that are more specific that you monetize more heavily. The the newsletter, and I think that a lot of journalism is actually going in that direction, where you have the core site which is built for scale, and then you end up having these other instantiations of it that are often more specific and often in places or on platforms that encourage scarcity that the core internet doesn't. And so you have a real move into things like podcasts. A lot of people, including Vox Media, are looking at different kinds of television, which obviously is a platform for scale, but you don't put that much on it at any one time, and it monetizes very differently. Conferences are another dimension of this. Newsletters are another dimension of this. And you know this question of how do you move people up the ladder, not just to, to liking your Facebook page, but to engaging with you or being or sort of being part of the brand in spaces where you're not actually building for scale or, or and certainly not building for volume in, in, in the same way where you're taking what you learned at the, uh, you know, at box.com and then applying it to a once a day Snapchat discover edition or applying it to podcasting or applying it to these places that end up in some ways being very sticky for more sort of super engaged fans of the of the of the site. And this is kind of the great hope of there being sort of a middle a middle route between sort of the one person shop and the massive corporation is so much of the talk around monetizing journalism artificially constrains itself to text. 
and of course newspapers were constrained by text because newspapers differentiation is based on only all the printing presses that produce that produce text and advertising along with it right in a geographical or an area but that that restriction no longer exists you can have to your point Text is great because it's super viral. It spreads really easily, and you can read it right away. A podcast is not viral. A podcast is the, it, like it requires a commitment. You actually have to sit down and listen. But it's also really valued by the people who care about that writer, who are loyal to that person or, or or that topic. So use both of them. Use the text to build an audience, a loyal audience that wants more, then monetize it through something that is much harder to build an audience. But what's the flip side of people really caring and paying attention? Well, now you drop in a native ad in a podcast where you're actually reading the ad and it's part of the flow and it fits in and it's it's much, much more lucrative. And yes, more and more podcasts are coming along and some have seen some won't and the CPM prices will go down. But at the end of the day, it's a fundamentally better ad unit than most of what we figured out for, for text. So think about them in parts. One is the audience generation part. The other one is the monetization part. And this also gets back at the fixed cost problem of journalism. Producing content is expensive. And it's particularly expensive because you, know, you have to always keep producing more of it. We kind of talked about before. So you need to figure out a way to leverage that in more places. And again, not just the text, but all the value you get from the text. The text, the value of the text is not just the person reading it. It's also the affinity you produced in the reader for the writer or for the site it came from. And how can you leverage that in other places? And having, like you said, just a much more holistic view. And I guess the, the, the core thing that I come back to again, again, with talking about publishing is you cannot keep this divide between the business and and the editorial like it has to be a holistic view and all your different pieces need to be working together yes monopolies were fun monopolies make you fat and lazy and journalism enterprises everywhere there were were unbelievably fat and lazy to the point that journalism journalists literally brag about not understanding how they make money like that's mind-blowing if you think about it but it still persists even today in 2016 like and the reality a lot, a lot is, less than it once did for sure a lot less I mean, a lot less I think like three or four years ago it was still pretty widespread how they do or do not make money they, let me ask you something quickly about podcasts though because you do a podcast I do a podcast I agree with everything you said about how good the the ad units are which is why everybody should advertise on my podcast and to a lesser extent on your podcast <laughs> but it is interesting to me when I look at the podcast advertising market because these are, are are reasonably big now and and there are a lot of them. It is still so much like 10 advertisers. I mean, it is a small group of advertisers yep. who are on everything. And I love them and I appreciate them. And assume, presumably it works for them or they wouldn't be coming back. But what do you think is, has stopped that market from exploding in the number of entrants? I have not been able to come up with a really good explanation of why podcasting, even as the number of podcasts and the listenership of podcasts has exploded so much, has remained sort of narrow in terms of which businesses see a value in in advertising on it for the exact same reason why it is valuable because it's hard like no one no one has quite figured it out it's not really obvious how to scale i mean the, the one thing that people don't appreciate about advertising is that advertising is like it's an ROI equation and everyone thinks about the R, what return do you get but it's also an i part like there's actual time spent to produce an ad or to deal with, you know, a podcast and and there's no real big mover and shaker. Like there needs to be much more of a 
consolidation in some respect, or someone's going to come along and, and figure out a way to systematize this so it can scale. And that that's what we're waiting for is kind of that moment. I mean, text was on the internet for for ages and ages and ages. They always put the graph up about amount of time spent on the internet versus amount of money spent on the internet. And for ages, there's this massive gap. And people are like, why, why, is, why is there no money? It had to be figured out. And Boom, With once it got figured out, that gap closed super quickly. And then for a long time, there was a gap. Oh, there's this big gap on mobile. All this time's on a mobile, but there's no money's made there. And then Facebook came along, and boom, that gap was closed. And it just takes longer to figure it out. Content is easier in some respects because— Yeah, I agree with that. People do it for altruistic reasons, <laughs> to be honest. Advertising, you actually have to get get a return. And— and to get a return, and then it's not just putting it up there. You have to. How do you measure it? How do you know that you're getting a return? How do you get the proof points to go to someone other than Squarespace and say, like, no, that actually works? Beyond the fact that Squarespace is on every single podcast forever, clearly they think it works. But that's not enough to get the next generation online. It's like it, it's like crossing the chasm. You have to cross cross the chasm with advertisers just as much as you do with customers or anybody else. So let me then, I want to be mindful of your time here. So let me close out with the the question we ask all our guests, but a specific version of it for you. What are the three business books that you would recommend people read? Oh, I hate this question. And, and the reason I hate it is um, I get asked all the time what books I read. And I don't read many books, honestly. Which I, what, I, this is what books you have of, read. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's funny is, you know, I think something like, you know, the, the, it's easy to say like the innovator, innovator's dilemma because that's, that's – I actually disagree with Professor Christensen and in some respects I've made on certain points. But that's kind of the departure point for his way of looking at the world for a lot of, of what I do. So that's kind of an easy one. Is but that book worth really reading get, if you've been hearing about the innovator's dilemma for years? Like I've read you on it and Matt on yes, it. Yes, it is because the reality is most people don't understand the innovator's dilemma. <laughs> well, the, the other problem the other problem with with most business books is they're actually better as HBR articles. Like they should probably be – you know, a couple thousand words, and then they get stretched out to, to make money. They call everything disruption. Disruption is a very specific meaning where the incumbents in a market are motivated to serve their best customers, and there's people who can't afford it, and someone comes in with a different product that is accessible to not the target customers, but to other people. And so the incumbent doesn't pay attention to it because, oh, Finally, someone serves other people. We don't care. But the, the lower one gets better and better and increases its capabilities and it has a different cost structure so it can scale. And eventually it starts peeling off the lower layers of the incumbent. And the incumbent responds by making their product better. But you make your product better and it becomes actually even more accessible to the, to the bottom end. The, the nuts and bolts of it, the reason why I like it and the reason why it's a core thing for me is in some respects I think it's overapplied. People want to apply it to everything and it doesn't always apply. Like I don't think it applied to Apple and which is why I think Professor Christensen would famously got Apple so wrong. But what I love about it is the way it really is not just about business but it's about incentives and it's about how managers think and it's about how people can make – decisions that make perfect sense but are actually completely wrong and why do they do that and in a true disruption scenario it is actually so devastating because it's impossible for a manager of an incumbent company to do the right decision because the their margins would be destroyed or they would kill their their market and their shareholders would never let them do it and this idea that you can lose while making the right decisions every step along the way is a powerful one that undergirds a lot of what I do. When I think about writing, I used to do interviews. My favorite interview to do of like a new hire at Microsoft or something 
and this is a classic business school interview, is tell me about a product or something that you don't like or a decision a company made that you think was the wrong decision. And the real powerful question is part two, which is why do you think they did that? So many people stop at saying Microsoft is dumb to do this, Apple's dumb to do this, Google's dumb to do this, and they don't take step two, which is think about why. And the reality is there are incredibly smart people at all these companies who are the top 1% of the 1%. They're incredibly smart. They are incredibly motivated to do the right thing. So what is it that makes them do the wrong thing? And then you get into things like incentives and structure and the way organizations are set up and, and all these sorts of interesting things that aren't, aren't apparent when you just look at it on the surface, but explain actually 98% of what happens in business, what happens in technology. That, that's what I try to get into and write about. And so that's why, at, at the core, that's why I value that book so highly. That's a great answer for your first book. What are your other two? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, where, where I get the most, I get a lot of value from, I'm going to, this is kind of a cheat answer. I'm not going to give you a specific book, but I love reading the founding storybooks. So for example, for, for the thing about Facebook yesterday, I, I went back and reread parts of the Facebook effect about you know when Facebook started and the origin books of Amazon or, or Twitter or, or going to Intel or like, you know, the, and the reason why I find them so useful kind of ties into the same reason. I think a lot of what drives a company is cemented in the very earliest days of the company. There are decisions that are made early. There are customers that are served initially that set up incentives set up the organization set up how they make money that are almost impossible to change absent a near-death experience later on and if you can understand what drove a company at its earliest days why decisions were made the way they were what the goal was what they were trying to accomplish how they grew culture is an accumulation of decisions right culture in a company is there because you can't afford the CEO can't afford to make every single decision. A CEO that creates an effective culture is one where it's like driving a car. You don't think about driving a car. You're making decisions constantly, but you're not thinking about it. Like that's what great companies do. They have a culture where they make decisions without thinking about it, about all these little things. And the problem is when they get in a new scenario, they have a decision-making apparatus that is under the surface, that is subconscious, and they make the wrong decisions. But those wrong decisions were actually made 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And if you can understand that, you can get so much more insight into how companies do what they do, why they do what they do, why they make bad choices. And so those are my favorite books to read is kind of these founding stories and understanding what's at the core of these companies' cultures that makes them look at the world a certain way, make decisions the way they do. And in some respects, this gets back to my political science background and, and my talk about living abroad in all these different places and seeing the world as, as gray is appreciating the degree to which different people can look at the exact same situation and interpret it completely differently. And in some respects, the biggest thing I got from my very non-traditional career path and going all over the place was not that I learned a lot, but I became so much more aware of how much I didn't know. And that is so powerful if you want to understand the world because you have to first know that there are questions to be asked before you can even hope to answer them. That's a good answer. That, 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 that leads to a lot of books. I can accept that. Uh, ben Thompson, editor of Stratechery, at Ben Thompson on Twitter. Your podcast is exponent.fm. Do I have that right? 
You do. Thank you very much for being on the show. It was a pleasure. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. This is a co-production of Vox.com and Panoply. And thank you, of course, to you, the listener. If you want more hot podcast action from me, you can always check out my other podcast, The Weeds, where I talk policy every week with my colleagues Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. Please rate this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with who you'd like to see on the show or, or what you'd like to see changed on the show. And I'll be back next week.